0: The way to heaven has never changed. God set the itinerary at the onset of history and has been consistent. And that's the point Paul makes in Romans chapter 4. The gospel preached in 58 AD was the same gospel that made Abraham right with God in 1800 BC. Nothing in the 2,000 years that separated Paul and Abraham changed or improved the gospel. And there are no alterations, there have been no alterations in the last 2,000 years. The gospel of God is changeless, it's timeless, it's immutable. Once I was a little boy at Christmas time, he was helping his mom unpack the decorations. He carefully unwrapped the nativity set, the wise men and the shepherds, Mary and Joseph, and finally he came to the baby in the manger. That's when the boy shouted, Mom, here's baby Jesus in his car seat. There will always be people like that little boy who want to modernize Christianity. Yet the gospel needs no modification. The means by which a person becomes right with God and fit for heaven is the same today as it was 4,000 years ago. We become pleasing to God not by obeying rules Or observing rituals, not by trying, but by trusting. And that's what Paul teaches us tonight here in chapter 4. The chapter begins, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What was it about humble Abraham that caused God to save him? Was it some fleshly trait, his pedigree, or his morality? Was it his works, his diligent service? No. If it had been either, Abraham could have boasted in himself. For the answer, Paul takes us back to the Bible. He takes us back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He says in verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? He goes back to Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was chosen by God for one reason only, his faith. Now realize, Abraham was one of the most revered figures in all of Judaism. In fact, the rabbis exaggerated his virtue. The Jewish book of Jubilees claims Abraham was perfect in all his deeds. No, he wasn't. He was a sinner like you and me. But the Jews assumed that God had accepted Abraham based on his good works. Paul knew better. Even Abraham needed God's grace. And Paul does a little scriptural digging to prove his point. He goes back to the beginning of the Torah, to Genesis, and he flags the very moment that Abraham was declared righteous. You might assume it was after he uprooted his family. And moved at God's prompting from Ur to Canaan. Or perhaps it was the time when he stood on Mount Moriah, lifted up his knife, and was willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Those were monumental moments in Abraham's life. But neither case earned for him God's acceptance. When was it then that God declared him righteous? Well, Paul takes us back to Genesis chapter 15. Not exactly a high point for Abraham. For at the time, Abraham was pouting. He was complaining about a lack of an heir. Abraham feared that without a son, he would die, and he would be forced to leave his wealth to his servant. At the time, Abraham spoke, God spoke to Abraham about his servant, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. At Abraham's greatest sense of deficiency, God showed him his own sufficiency. God blew him away with an amazing promise, that Abraham would not only have a son, but he would father a nation. And according to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, the very next verse, we're told, He believed in the Lord, and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. It was the faith that Abraham exhibited at that moment that made him right with God. This man gained God's approval, not due to some great act on his part, but because of a great promise from God's heart. The father of the Jews pleased God, not because of some great feat, but because of his faith. Paul continues in verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You know, most Americans believe that we should get what we earn. A good day's work deserves a good day's pay. This might be a good rule in the workplace, but it doesn't apply to God's kingdom. If God's favor and thus our salvation can be earned by us, then it makes God our debtor. He then owes us, and God is nobody's debtor. Thus, salvation can never be earned. It's not wages, it's a gift. It's by grace that is, love that's on the house. A person either trusts in their own grit. Are in God's grace. You see, if Abraham could have been good enough, or pure enough, or sure enough, or had endured enough, then God would have been obligated to him. But God owes no man. God is never forced to give. God gives freely. And this is why all God's blessings come to us by grace through faith. Verse 5 But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies, the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. It's our faith in God's grace and His willingness to justify us freely that gains for us a right standing with God. Thus, in heaven, there'll be no boasts from us. In heaven, there will be no hallelujahs, only hallelujahs. We'll praise the Lord. God will get the glory. Verse 6, For just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, Paul now moves forward 800 years in history, from 1800 BC to around 1000 BC, from one Hebrew hero to another, from Abraham to now David, to prove that the way to heaven doesn't change. In verses 7 and 8, he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Psalm 32 was written after David's big downfall. You remember his one-night stand with Bathsheba. Oh, how it resulted in a life of pain and heartache. Adultery, deceit, murder, an ugly cover-up. You remember this story. David had been unrighteous. He had nothing to present God in the way of any goodness or good works. And yet God chose to forgive David's sin. We're told here he did not impute or credit sin to David's account. In other words, God hit the clear button on his calculator. Presto, the record of David's sin vanished. God cleared out his memory. And this is what God does for everyone who trusts in the grace that's in Jesus. He does not impute sin. Paul asks, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Now remember the Jews believed that the act of circumcision was a requirement for God's favor. That the uncircumcised Gentiles could never be accepted or blessed by God. And you know, this kind of idea still is around, that certain deeds or rituals are prerequisites to God's blessing. Christians today might concede that faith alone gets you to heaven. But if you really want God's favor, if you really want his blessing, you need more than faith. You earn it by fill in your blank. For some people, it's being baptized a certain way. That's the litmus test. Or it's speaking in tongues. Or it's taking communion once a week. Or it's how you dress. Or it's the music you listen to. Or it's reading a particular translation of the Bible or attending a specific church. The list is endless. But if you don't meet their criteria, you're considered a second-class Christian. Paul contends that no right, no ritual, no rule can add anything to our standing with God. We obtain and maintain God's approval and His blessing by faith and faith alone. Remember, solo fide, or faith alone, was the great battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. Roman Catholicism had no problem with faith, or with the blood of Jesus, or with Christ as mediator, or with biblical authority. Their issue with Martin Luther and his allies was with this one word, alone. Rather than faith alone, they had added good works. Rather than the blood of Christ alone, they said you had to keep the sacraments. Rather than the priesthood of Jesus alone, they added human priests. Rather than the authority of Scripture alone, they elevated church tradition. Paul, in this book of Romans, is crystal clear. God's favor is gained by faith and faith alone. Verse 9, For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Here's back to Abraham, back to Genesis. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. The Jews said you had to be circumcised to be right with God. But when God pronounced Abraham righteous, when was he, was he circumcised at that time? That's the question. In fact, check the chronology. Abraham believes and is declared righteous in Genesis 15, verse 6. Circumcision isn't instituted until Genesis 17, verse 10. That's a full 14 years later. In other words, that means that circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham being righteous. It didn't even exist. When God declared Abraham right with him, circumcision was not even an idea in his head. Likewise, baptism and communion and church attendance and all of our add-ons didn't exist. In other words, our own works had nothing to do with our own standing with God. These kinds of things might help us grow, but our relationship with God is based on faith and faith alone. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Sin is taken off the ledger, and righteousness is placed on the ledger by faith in the grace of Jesus. Circumcision was a sign. Like baptism and communion today, it was an outward mark of an inward faith. You know, a sign doesn't confer righteousness. It confirms the righteousness that came by faith. Thus, the uncircumcised Gentiles didn't have the sign, but they had the substance. They had the faith. And it was faith that made them right with God. Abraham became the father of believing Gentiles and believing Jews. The issue that saved both was not religious practices like circumcision, but faith. For he says in verse 12, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, here's another argument for righteousness by grace through faith. Such righteousness preceded the law. Remember, Abraham was declared righteous 500 years before the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Obviously, righteousness then comes apart from the law. God never intended for the Jews to become right with him by keeping all these rules and regulations. The law exposed their sin. It didn't save them. Salvation has always been by faith. And then verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Something can't be purchased and free at the same time one nullifies the other. You can't receive salvation through the work of Christ and your own good works. The law and the promise are mutually exclusive. He says, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. As we discussed back in chapter 3, the law's purpose wasn't to save us. It was to expose our sin. Without a standard, You wouldn't know if you were in violation. You don't know you're speeding unless the speed limit's posted. Paul is saying the law doesn't save. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. It's sad, the folks that I talk to that lack confidence in their relationship with God. Do you know that God loves you? Oh, I guess so. Are your sins forgiven? Oh, I hope so. Are you going to heaven when you die? Well, I think so. But with God's grace, there should be no guesswork. You find a certainty when your relationship with God depends on His promise, not your performance. That's what Paul's saying to us. Ever play shoots and ladders with the kids? I don't know if this game even exists anymore. It does. Some of them, our moms and dads are shaking their heads. You've played chutes and ladders. You climb and climb the ladder. You get nearer and nearer the prize. But you're always thinking one wrong spin, man, and you're down the chute. And this is how some people try to live their Christian life. They're confident as long as they're doing good and they're climbing higher. But suddenly they spin into some sin and they feel as if it's down the chute. Hey, grace assures us. That even when we spin into trouble at times, we don't lose our place on the board. Jesus died so that we could get another spin, and another, and another, and another. Verse 16. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. For as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In other words, whether you're a law-abiding Jew or whether you're a law-ignorant Gentile, the blessings of God are received the same way by, God's, by the promise of God's grace. So, let's follow in Abraham's footsteps and have faith. But the question arises, what is real faith? You recall James chapter 2, verse 19? Even the demons believe and tremble. Even the demons have a certain element of faith. What is real saving faith? Well, to illustrate real faith, Paul again points to Abraham. Abraham not only teaches us our need for faith, but he illustrates what real faith looks like. And in the next few verses, Paul puts Abraham's faith on display. In verse 17, we see the preoccupation of his faith. In verses 18 to 21, the application of his faith and verses 22 through 25, the ramification of his faith. First, notice the preoccupation of his faith. Verse 17. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Abraham believed in an almighty God, a God who brings something out of nothing say you took an art class and you're told to sculpt a statue but no one issued you any molding clay you would question the teacher's sanity wouldn't you hey something doesn't come out of nothing but it can with god when god created the universe he brought it all out of thin, he brought thin air out of thin air you realize that He created the world ex nihilo. That's the Latin word for out of nothing. Even today when hope is depleted, when there's no spark left in your marriage, when your kid seems like a lost cause, when the business is about to go under, our God is still able to bring something out of nothing. He specializes in that. And God also specializes in resurrecting the dead. Paul says of God, who gives life to the dead... Dead people, for sure, but also dead dreams and dead relationships. Long before the resurrection of Jesus, as Abraham and and Isaac started up the mountain, Abraham told his servant, We will come back. Not just I, but we. Isaac was the heir to God's promise, and I'm sure Abraham was puzzled that God wanted him to sacrifice the fulfillment of his promises, his son Isaac. I'm sure Abraham rationalized it by believing that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. I heard of an old seminary professor who had a surefire way, he said, to predict the success of pastors in training. He said all he had to do was listen to a single sermon. He said this, I come to hear if they are big godders, are little little godders. Some men have a God who can't do miracles, hasn't spoken infallibly, and doesn't intervene for His people. They have a little God. I call them little godders. But there are other men who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He shows Himself strong on behalf of them who fear Him. These men are big godders, and God will bless their ministry. Understand, the patriarch Abraham was a big godder, and his big God responded to his faith. You realize we all have faith. You get sick and you go to the doctor whose name you can't pronounce. His diplomas you can't verify. He writes you a prescription you can't read. It's filled by a pharmacist you never met who measures out a chemical compound you don't understand from a container you can't see. He puts in a bottle you can't open. And yet you still take it and you expect to get well. That's faith, friends. Hey, we all have faith. The only question is the object of our faith. Is your faith in God or is your faith in yourself? In Mark 11, verse 22, Jesus told his disciples, Have faith in God. Now look at the application of Abraham's faith. Verse 18 Who contrary to hope, In hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So your descendants, so shall your descendants be. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the oldest woman to give birth to a baby was from Spain. It was by in vitro fertilization, the mother was 66 years old. Can you imagine? But the Bible tells us. That the record actually belongs to Abraham's wife, Sarah. For Abraham impregnated Sarah at the incredibly old age of 90, long past menopause, her reproductive chances hopeless. Sarah and Abraham hoped in God. Her friends said, Forget it. Her doctor scoffed, Impossible. The only urging this couple had was a word from God. God made a promise. And they trusted in that promise. Abraham and Sarah knew the facts. They knew enough to know what it took. You know, that old people didn't have babies. Faith doesn't deny the facts. It just goes beyond the facts. Faith reaches beyond the logic, beyond the reason. When God promise, when His promise is contrary to the facts, faith stops listening to reason and listens only to God. Perhaps tonight there's a sin you can't shake. Or maybe there's a situation that seems impossible to you. Or maybe you're in a relationship that's on the rocks. And everyone is telling you just to give up. Stop listening to what everyone else is saying. And trust in God. Hold on to His promise. In His time, He'll fulfill it. Verse 19. Not being weak in faith, He did not consider His own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham kept acting on God's promise. Even though he was 100 and Sarah was 90, they kept locking the bedroom door at night. They kept hoping. Sarah, 45 years past menopause, kept taking her temperature every morning. Imagine the clerk at Baby Warehouse when they picked out a crib. And what a weird baby shower Sarah must have had. All the ladies present, Of all the ladies present, only Sarah really believed that she was going to have a baby. Understand, true faith isn't a passive thing. It's an active thing. It's an aggressive thing. Real faith is faith to the extent that I'm willing to act on what I believe. Abraham and Sarah acted on what they believed. Hey, if faith prays for rain, it walks out with an umbrella. If faith asks God for a job, it leaves a house and work clothes. If faith is praying for a baby, well, the couple do what they need to do to have a baby. Genuine faith sees things, not as they are, but as God promises to make them. That's why even if you don't feel like praying, or you're not in the mood to read your Bible, Or you're too tired to act on what God is asking. Do it anyway. For God can bring fruit from barrenness, just as He did for Sarah. He'll resurrect the right feelings if you trust Him. Believe God. Believe that He'll make good on His promises, even if right now your playpen is empty. When God creates, He takes nothing and He makes something beautiful. I like the little quote, faith is the bird that sings to greet the dawn while it is still dark. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Hey, between the giving and the receiving of Abraham's promise, 25 years had elapsed. And yet he refused to waver. You know, often the longer the wait for God's promise, the harder it is to remain confident. The more time that transpires, the more opportunity there is for doubt to creep in. Hey, this is why the opposing team tries to ice the kicker in a football game. Just before the field goal attempt, they'll call timeout. They might call two. They want the kicker to have time to think about the importance of his attempt. If the slightest doubt slips in, he can slip up and miss wide right. And the longer they can keep him thinking, the longer they can keep him from acting, the more the possibility of some doubt might creep in. Well, Abraham refused to get iced. Even over 25 years, his faith never wavered. He was fully convinced that God was faithful. He even gave glory to God in advance. He started the high fives before he even teed up the ball. Which brings us to the ramifications of faith. Verse 22. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. I mean, here is the beauty of the gospel. Goodness is credited to people who don't deserve it. As with Abraham, God gives us the righteousness we lack in exchange for the faith that we show. How are we made right with God? By faith. Of course, if you've read the Old Testament, you've got a problem. For Abraham was not always a man of faith, was he? The name Hagar isn't just a pair of slacks, friends. There was a slave girl named Hagar that Sarah sent into the tent as a proxy to have Abraham's baby. Hagar went in a maid, and she came out a mom. Don't forget that story. Obviously, faith doesn't have to be perfect in order to be effective. God forgives even our lapses in faith. See, justification, as we talked about last week, it means that God treats me just as if I'd never sinned even when I do. In fact, all the Old Testament saints failed. All of them were flawed, but not once is an Old Testament sin rehashed in the New Testament. There's a reason for that. Evidently, what God forgives, He forgets. Verse 23, Now it was not written for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. With Abraham and David, God set a precedent. He forgives sin and He imputes goodness by faith, not works. And it shall be imputed to us who believe in Him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sins and was raised to justify us by His grace. Chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by God into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, this is a wonderful verse. If you're a believer in Jesus, here is the status that you have received. You're justified. In other words, God treats you as if you'd never sin, even when you do, and justification comes with its perks. With Along with justification, you have peace with God. Oh, what a wonderful thing to be at peace with the God who created you. You have access to God. You can go to Him in prayer. You have the joy of God. You have hope in God. Hey, we're standing in grace now and we'll be rejoicing in glory for all eternity. In fact, His grace is at work in us now to perfect us in our trials. For He says in verse 3, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation, and this Greek word translated tribulation is the word thalipsis. It means to crush or to squeeze under pressure. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that there are times when God squeezes us. He likes to engineer pressure-packed circumstances to break us, to shape us. And this is so vital. When we're squeezed, don't try to escape for knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hey, if you want to build into your life endurance and godly character and optimism, then don't hop out of the pressure cooker every time you face a trial. Don't look for the easy way out. Look for God's way out. For in the trials of our lives, in these pressure-packed times, God is cooking up something good in us. Verse 5, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Here's another perk of justification. It's the love of God poured out into our hearts. God sets out His love in the pages of Scripture, but He pours out His love by His Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to perceive, to grasp, to feel firsthand God's love in our hearts. And speaking of God's love, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How amazing is that? Once a little boy, he was asked to donate blood to his sick sister. He didn't understand the procedure really, but he loved his sis, and he'd do anything for her. So when the needle was removed from his arm, the little guy said to the nurse, Tell me, when am I going to croak? The little boy had agreed to the transfusion, thinking it would cost him his very life. Yet his brave and selfless acts still fall short of the degree to which Jesus loves us. As Paul says, it's one thing to die for someone you admire and that you love and that who loves you, but it's an altogether different issue to lay down your life for your enemy. Yet isn't that what Jesus has done for us? Notice the words in these verses. When did God fall in love with you? When you were without strength, he says, ungodly, a sinner, in verse 10, even enemies. Before you even gave a rip about God, God demonstrated his love for you in the most extreme way. Before you showed God the first inkling that you'd ever serve him or follow him or love him, he went out on a limb, a limb called a cross to prove His love for you. God didn't even wait until you were lovable to start loving you. Even at your ugliest and your dirtiest and your meanest, He was willing to take you as is because of Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died in our place. It was April the 6th, 32 AD, when God made a scene. He made a point for heaven and for earth to see. On that day, He demonstrated for all time, He proved for all eternity how much He loves you and me. You see, God sets out His love in His Word. He pours out His love by His Spirit. But He worked out His love on the cross. Verse 9, Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You know, an interesting name for God appears in Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 9. Jehovah-Nakah, or the Lord who strikes. You need to know, God is no pacifist. One day, in His wrath, God is going to punish this wicked world with a sharp sword. God is the God who will strike. But He doesn't want to strike you. He loves you. So in your place, He struck His only Son. 39 times, Jesus' back was slashed with a whip. His brow pricked with prickly thorns. His hands and feet perforated with spikes. His side pierced in His heart punctured by a spear. And I hope you get the point. Jesus was struck so that you wouldn't have to be. The God who strikes became the God who was stricken. Jesus died on a Roman cross to save you from the wrath to come and to reconcile you to God. Tennyson once wrote of Roman religion. He said, the gods are hard to reconcile. The Roman idols were gods with a grudge. They had to be won over. Their anger and reluctance had to be overcome. But The cross wasn't man's effort to appease an angry God. It was God's plan to reconcile us. God took the initiative. He went out of His way to do what was necessary to have a relationship with you. That's how much He loves you. Verse 11, and not only that, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The lost world approaches life with their fingers crossed. They hope that luck is on their side. But Christians approach life with their eyes fixed on the cross. God demonstrated His love toward us. He made a scene on the cross. He spoke in an undeniable way. So why do you doubt Him now? What more could God have done to better say He loves you than what He's already done? He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. It's amazing how the actions of one man can change the destiny of millions. On August the 6th, 1945, President Harry Truman authorized the dropping of the atomic bomb on the Japanese island of Hiroshima. On that day, every building on the island, every building within 4.7 miles of the impact, were obliterated. On Hiroshima, 90,000 people died instantly from the blast. 320,000 people died from the fallout, died later. This one event changed the world. It ushered us into the nuclear era. But in our text here in Romans, we're dealing with another atom bomb. An atom bomb. An A-D-A-M bomb. For in the Garden of Eden, the first man, Adam, what did he do? He bombed. He sinned, he ate the forbidden fruit, and he launched a rebellion against God. And this atom bomb is responsible for far more deaths than Truman's. It brought death to all humanity. Each of the 100 billion human beings who have ever lived over all time have been impacted by Adam's bomb. See, Paul was a rabbi here, a rabbi by training, and here he employs rabbinical logic to make his point. His thinking here is distinctively Jewish. For Hebrews held the concept of racial solidarity or federal headship. It's the idea that one person can act on behalf of a whole nation or a whole group of people. You recall the Philistine challenge? Rather than waste the lives of thousands of soldiers, why not both sides just send out a champion to fight on behalf of their nation, their people? But again, it illustrated how the ancient Hebrews had this one-for-all mentality. And this is Paul's rationale here. One person, a designated representative, can act by proxy for a whole race of people. Thus, when Adam sinned, As the father of the human race, he acted on behalf of his descendants, the other humans that would follow him. His sin passed down to his progeny. Here's what happened when Adam bombed. The entire human gene pool was contaminated. Thus, you and I are born tainted with sin. We have tainted blood. Our blood has been poisoned by sin. You've heard the expression, one bad apple spoils a whole bunch? That's more true than you know. Adam ate the apple, and he became a bad apple. And the Bible teaches that every human is now born with a sin nature. It said, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our nature to sin. We inherited it from Adam. Ephesians 2 verse 3 puts it, We are by nature children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath. Mom, Dad, I hate to break this to you, but that cute little precious, adorable little baby that you tuck into bed at night is in reality a diabolical sinner incognito. Have you ever bit into an apple and discovered a worm inside? It happens. You know, you look at the apple, there's no hole in the apple. And you wonder, how in the world did the worm get in there? What happens is that an egg is laid in the apple blossom. And when the worm hatches, it finds itself inside the apple. It has to eat its way out. And this is how sin works. It begins inside us. We're born with a sin nature, with sin in our hearts, with rebellion and selfishness in our heart. And it eats its way out into our attitudes and our actions. You know, it's interesting that an entire football team can get penalized five yards when one man jumps off sides. just takes one man. Well, likewise, because of Adam's bomb, the whole world is penalized and born into sin and subject to death. In a sense... Our death warrant is written into our birth certificate. Verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now follow Paul's logic here. It's rather difficult. follow it, for 2,600 years, that is from Adam to Moses, mankind sinned. But because the law had not been given, God didn't hold mankind accountable for his sin. And yet people still died. Yes, a death sentence was still being applied and carried out. All mankind was suffering for, for sin, but it wasn't their own sin. They were suffering for the sin they had inherited from Adam. For even though they weren't guilty of Adam's specific sin, they still received his punishment. Now, I know this sounds unfair to modern-day Americans. But before we accuse God of unethical treatment, there are a couple of points that we should consider. First, you think it's unfair that you inherited Adam's sin. But what makes you think you could have done better than Adam? That's the first question. Matter of fact, I got a $100 bill tonight for any honest person who can go a week without committing a sin. Any, any takers? No lust, no pride, no selfishness. A C-note just for one sinless week. That's all we're talking about. Any takers tonight? When the United States competes in the international track meet, we send our fastest people, don't we? If, if we lose... I don't grumble that I didn't get to go and run the race. I know the runners who represent our nation are are the best, they're faster than me for sure. I would have lost too. This is how we should feel about Adam. He was God's special creation. Adam was an unmarred man. He had no hurts, he had no hang-ups, he carried no baggage like you and me. If anyone could have lived a sinless life, it would have been Adam. He was the best humanity had to offer, yet he still bombed. And here's the second reason we shouldn't buck Paul's logic here, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. If sin enters the world through one man's rebellion, then salvation can enter by one man's righteousness. Think of it like this. If you insist on standing on your own two feet, you know you think it's unfair to be burdened down with someone else's sin. Okay. Then God will let you attempt your own sinless life. But if you fail, you're now saddled with your own sin. And so it's up to you to save yourself. Good luck with that. But in God's wisdom, since sin was passed down by one man, therefore salvation can now be passed down by one man. Today, forgiveness is passed to us through Jesus Christ. Verse 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through, as th- as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Through the power of one, Adam, sin reigns in the world. But now through the power of one, Jesus Christ, grace reigns in us. And note the contrast in these verses. Adam brought condemnation, Jesus' justification. In Adam, we're bound up. In Jesus, grace abounds. In Adam, we receive a sentence of sin. In Jesus, we receive a sinless status. In Adam, there's death. In Christ, there is life. John Calvin once wrote, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. What Paul is saying here is that the damage done by Adam's sin is more than made up for by the deliverance that comes through the obedience of Jesus. Adam's bomb is not nearly as potent as the explosion of grace that comes through Jesus Christ. In chapter 5 ends, Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the Greek it reads, Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Sin can't cause a breach, that grace cannot build a bridge. I love the Phillips translation, it renders verses 20 and 21. Though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God, his grace is wider and deeper still. Mel Trotter Ministries has been helping the homeless on the streets of America for over a century. In the early 1900s, Mel Trotter was a hopeless alcoholic living in Chicago. When his little boy laid in his casket, Mel Trotter stole the shoes off the boy's corpse to buy some cheap wine. That's the kind of person Mel Trotter was. Mel's drinking became so bad that he grew suicidal. In fact, he was on his way to drown himself when he walked into the Pacific Gardens rescue mission in Chicago. And he heard a man give a testimony of how Jesus had changed his life. Mel met the Lord that night, and he was never the same. In fact, he was so thoroughly transformed that eight years later, he was running a rescue mission himself in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And over the course of his lifetime, Mel Trotter started 68 rescue missions all across the country. Though sin had abounded in Mel's life, grace now abounded much more. See, sin can get a vice grip in our lives, but grace is stronger, my friends. Here's what he's saying. God's ability to forgive and lift And save is mightier than our ability to mess up.